Welcome to the Anti-Architect Podcast. I am your host, Christian Giordano. As president and owner of the design firm Mancini Duffy, I am driven by a quest for learning and radically changing the industry. With this podcast, I'm hoping to improve the industry that I'm so passionate about by taking a critical look at how architects work through a variety of voices and shared experiences. Hello, Anti-Architect Podcast listeners. I'm excited to bring you all something a bit different for the next two episodes of The Anti-Architect. This is part one of two special guests from Shadow Ventures and Shadow Partners. We will get into why they are important and why it is an important company and community for the AEC industry. I want to shift the conversation for these few episodes and venture into marketing, technology, and some take on the future of our industry. With all the hype around artificial intelligence, how does this really affect architects and designers? And hopefully we get into some of those talks here. My guest for part one is joining me via Zoom, and I'm happy to have Jeff Eccles as my guest here today on the Anti-Architect podcast. Jeff is the Senior Director of Marketing at Shadow Ventures where his role is to drive innovation through advocacy, community building, education, partnering, and thought leadership for those of us in the architecture, engineering, construction, and real estate world. With 30 years of experience, he's all about making positive changes happen by understanding how a company's culture actually functions and can be improved upon. Jeff loves coming up with new ideas and helping tech and SaaS company founders in this industry. One of the things we will discover is that there's a lot of technology happening in this industry. It's just not well advertised or known by many architects and designers. Jeff has been published in numerous publications, featured on dozens of podcast episodes, has his own podcast, or several, has presented on stage probably 100 times or so. And Jeff was nice enough to have me on his show, Context and Clarity, on YouTube, which was a live show, a lot of fun. So, Jeff, thanks so much for taking the time to be here on the podcast. Thanks, Christian. It's great to be here. Awesome. Um, it, you know, I think an appearance on the Anti-Arctic podcast is everybody's dream. <laughs> That's funny. Thank you. I, I, I appreciate that. I think, I, you know, I was listening back to the, the, the show I did with you. And I, as I said on there, I'm, I'm always astonished that anybody listens to the podcast. So I'm grateful and thank you for that compliment. So, um, so when you had me on your live show, um, you sent me a bunch of personal questions to prepare. And we do that a little bit on this show, um, but ours are more like the serious questions. But I like your method of breaking the ice. So I'm going to steal one of your ideas for, for this conversation. What's your favorite candy? Um, my favorite candy would have to start with anything dark chocolate. Um, you know, the Hershey's special dark are, uh, they're special. <laughs> have you been to the Hershey uh, factory? I've not, oh. not been there. See where I live in New Jersey, it's only like a two and a half hour drive. So, you know, it's got a lot of roller coasters and you can make chocolate and the whole thing. It's a little bit of a scam in the making chocolate because you're not really making chocolate, but you know, it's fun. <laughs> uh, uh, might, might have to make a pilgrimage at some point. That's right. It's not far. 
Um, so let's jump right into it. I'd love to ask you some architect questions because you are educated as an architect. Um, if you had to pick one thing, what annoys you about most architects? That's what annoys me about most architects. Um, it one one thing I've discovered over the um, especially the last year or so, in fact, in a little less than a year, is that um, we have this we have this desire and this need to control. Right? Uh, we learned this in school. You know, I, I think I think the architectural education is really most importantly made up of, of just a few simple things. It's design thinking, it's critical thinking, it's creative thinking. And fortunately, unfortunately, one of the things comes that comes out of that is, um, or, or could be the desire just to control everything, right? If, if I'm, you know, if I'm strategizing, if I'm, if I'm putting together a program for, you know, this user for this, this building or whatever the, the project at hand is, I want to control everything. I want to control where the ductwork goes. I want to control the, the alignment of the lighting. Um, I want to control, you know, the entry sequence, everything about it, which is great right, in the context of an architecture project. But then when architecture is life, right. And, and the, uh, um, those desires start to bleed over and in, into uh, other areas uh, that can become problematic. And, uh, and so that's, that, that I think is maybe one of the big weak points, strengths and weaknesses mm -hmm. Yeah, that we have. Yeah. I, 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 I get it. Trust me. And then along those lines, what are you, what are your biggest frustrations with the AEC industry in general? What do you see right now that you find frustrating? Uh, well, it's um, so it's funny. We're talking about this, um, right now we're recording, it's August 15th and a week from today, I, uh, I take up the, the mantle, I guess, again, of, of a teacher and I'll be teaching undergrad and, and graduate level pro practice. And one of the things, especially at the graduate level, but both, both classes, um, I teach them a little bit differently, but especially at the graduate level, I ask the students, I say, what, you know, look around you. So if you're a grad student in architecture program, you're traditionally, you'd be what, about 24, 25 years old, something sure. like that. Um, look around you and what in the last 24, 25 years has not changed. And the answer, there is no answer to that, right? That everything has changed, but here in, the profession, in the industry, um, you know, there are a lot of business models that by and large have not changed in a hundred years. And there's resistance to change, which I get, right? We're human beings, human mm -hmm. beings resist change. But when it comes to the business of architecture, the business of AEC and, and beyond, we've got a problem, right? When everything is changing. When you look out across the landscape and you see the alphabet soup, the AIAs, the SMPSs, the ACECs, the ABCs, and, and this is no shade on any of them because I love them and and have spent a lot of time, as you said, on stages for them. Yep. But when everybody has for their monthly programs some conversation about AI and a large 
amount, a large percentage of those conversations, whether it's audience questions or actually presented from the stage, they're, they're just they're either flat out wrong, they're missing, they're misinformed, or they're they're fear based conversations. Um, we've got a problem because whether you know it or not, whether you like it or not, everything around us is changing. AI is is running. Uh, it may be running transcription right now. I didn't ask this before we get started, <laughs> but you may be running a, uh, a transcription service. It will afterward. Yeah, that, we'll run this through it yeah, and get a transcript. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, when you log into Amazon and it shows you the grid and pick out the bicycles, that's your training in AI. Yeah. There's, it's it's everywhere, and, and not not to just go completely, uh, you know, down the rabbit hole of AI right here, but. But there's this resistance to change in the way that we do business, even the 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 things, the services that we provide for our clients. Sure. Like there's nobody that says you have to be a full service firm. There's nobody that says there's nothing that says no rule that says you have to provide this service, that service, the other service. Why not think about this differently? Why not do this differently? Why not think about you know, the, the value of the result of what you do and then work backwards and shape your, your services, um, using your, your super strengths to provide the best, the best service you possibly can to clients that value what you do. Um, so that's, that's where I think we, we really fall short is, uh, it's just the, not even resistance to change, almost a denial. I'll take it to that level, a denial that what we do in the way that we're doing it is being devalued every day. Um, and, and there are ways that we could change that, sure. there are ways that we could turn that around, but we're just not willing to. It's interesting to say that about the AI because, and we'll get into AI a little bit further further along in the conversation, but I was at a, a what. In, I'm in this organization called YPO, Young Presidents Organization, and it's a global organization. They have their construction industry network summit that they do every year. I was just there a few months back, and I actually, you know, I don't, I don't want to say I moderated, but I did more of an introduction of AI and the topic, and um, it was the least attended of all the breakout sessions mm -hmm. with all the contractors. And I'm talking, you know, thousands of people there. It was the least attended thing. And I thought, wow, this I thought was going to be the most attended thing because it's all you hear about on the news. But it is a factor in the, in the, in not only in the architecture and, and design side, which I think we're more adept to, to, or more willing to use. Definitely when you get into the construction side, it's, it's going to be interesting to see how, it gets adopted because they really don't care about it. Not not that they don't want to use it. They just don't care about it right now. You know, at the end of the day, all of the advances in, in construction itself, I think you could argue and a lot of contractors could argue that it's still a lot faster and cheaper and more efficient to get a bunch of goons to go out there and build that thing real quick and knock it out and move on to the next job. <laughs> Yeah, I know in the introduction, you said that the second part of the series is going to be um, the guest will be KP Reddy, who's the CEO, founder and CEO of, of Shadow Partners and Shadow Ventures. So I'm on the partner side. He's on both sides. Mm -hmm. But one of my roles is to sometimes, not all the time, but to sometimes field requests 
speaking requests for KP. And the number of requests that he gets regarding, you know, again, alphabet soup, a lot of them, um, or, or, you know, even bigger conferences and things. Um, people are requesting that he come and talk about AI. And so he'll, he'll, he'll talk a lot about AI, I'm sure. Um, he's got some fantastic insights and they're not, they're not what you expect they're going to be. Right. Most likely. Um, and I, you know, I think your point about construction, you know, specifically get a bunch of people out here to build this fast. Yeah, absolutely. One of the problems that we have is that we think about AI and we go, oh, chat GPT. And that's such a small, those large language model um, services are such a small percentage of the AIs that are actually out there. Yeah. And yeah. so when we get into conversations about that, is an AI going to, going to, uh, you know, nail those two by sixes together? No, it's not a robot <laughs> might, but, but AI is not, but the way that we manage projects, you know, if we think about construction, the tools that we use to manage projects, uh, to do budgeting, uh, to build performas, to, um, uh, you know, even on the design side to, to iterate. Mm -hmm. I mean, all of those tools are readily available now. Absolutely. And, and, uh, could assist, assist is an important word there, uh, could assist in the process. But like you said, there's a lot of talk in the news, AI, this, that, or the other. They're not talking about a lot of these other tools that are out there beyond chat GPT. So. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't surprise me that much that um, that people in construction or, or architecture or engineering or real estate uh, don't care that much about AI. One of the reasons is that they don't know, right? They don't know everything that's out there and all the all the possibilities that are out there. Uh, so you know, we're still learning, and it's evolving very, very quickly. Uh, but it's here. Yeah, and absolutely. More is coming. <laughs> um, so in listening to a lot of the podcasts that you host or have been on, you spend a, a good chunk of your time talking about um, small firms and, and small architecture firms. And, um, you know, I, I guess my question is, where does a firm like mine fit in with 100 people? Um, you know, yet we do business or we do our competition, right, is yes, it's other smaller 150 person firms, whatever that might be. But our day to day competition is, in fact, the 2000 person firms, the 5000 person firms, the sometimes in Gensler's case, you know, a billion dollars in revenue, which is just to me unbelievable that a service, you know, a service provider can have a billion dollars in revenue. I mean, that's a lot of, you know, a lot of invoices that go out on a monthly basis. So how does a firm like mine or, or that hundred person firm differentiate itself from, you know, the other, the other larger firms and even the small firms? Yeah. Yeah. That's a great question. And, and yeah, a lot of my, uh, a lot of my focus over the years has been small and, and medium-sized firms because of my involvement with Entree Architect. Um, and, and I think the answer to your question is, is similar, whether you're a hundred person firm or a small firm. And if you start doing some Googling or, or go to the uh, AIA small firm exchange 
page and, and you can find the definitions or at least AIA's definitions of small firms. And um, if you're a sole practitioner, those definitions may surprise you a little bit, but, but that differentiation factor, and, and this is, maybe this is, um, um, maybe it's, it's ironic, maybe it's counterintuitive, but in a way the differentiation factor is very low tech but it could be very high tech as well. And at the end of the day, I mean, you said Gensler, a billion dollars in revenue or a billion dollars in billing. I forget how you framed it, but, um, but they're a service, right? Professional services firms. That's what architects are. That's what engineers are, attorneys, accountants, professional services. Yep. And so we can't forget about the service side and we can't forget about the customer or what we call clients we can't forget about the client experience side that's usually where one of the big differentiators um, or one of the best ways to differentiate yourself um, you know if you're if you're a larger firm and you compete on the rfp or rfq circuit so to speak you get into interviews and the people on the other side of the table you know mm -hmm. the the decision makers, or at least we think they're the decision makers on the other side of the table. They want to know what's it like, you know, what's it like to work with Mancini Duffy? What's it like to work with Gensler? What's the difference between those two? If I'm working with Gensler, New York, and I don't know how many people I'm guessing several hundred people in, in Gensler, New York's office, what's it like on the day to day? Right. Do I have a single point of contact? Do I have a point of contact? Am I calling into a black hole? <laughs> What's that like? Many of the concerns on the client side are budget and schedule. We hear that all of the time, but it's really, are you solving my problems? Hmm. Right. If I'm the project manager on the client side, are you making my life better? That can mean a lot of things to a lot of different people. And, and that's what we have to concentrate on. If we're concentrating on making our clients' life better, we're going to be okay. We're going to differentiate ourselves because there aren't that many people that are concentrating on making their clients' lives better. Yeah. Um, you know, you've mentioned um, you, you were one of the great guests on uh, Context and Clarity Live, Will Gadara who I, I've never asked you this, but you may know Will Gadara. I don't know if you've ever worked on a project with him, but um, rest, famous restaurateur from New York mm -hmm. wrote a book called, um, um, what is the name of his book? <laughs> Unreasonable Hospitality. And if you read Unreasonable Hospitality, first of all, it's great storytelling. Um, but you could read that book and say, okay, here's a restaurateur talking about customer service. Makes total sense, right? That's the name of the game. Yes, it's the food, it's the quality of the food, it's all of those things, but it, you could have the best, you know, pick your favorite food, the best in the world and have terrible customer service and you're not going to last that long. Yeah. And so he's got this, this book called Unreasonable Hospitality. I think if an architect were looking for one book to read between now and the end of 2023, it ought to be unreasonable hospitality hmm. because you could take from that a lot of cues, a lot of lessons, uh, a lot of strategies for client service, client expectation, client experience. 
and it's all about differentiation. Um, so, you know, on the low tech side, right? That's your people. That's your culture. It's those things. That's on the low tech side. My question, and KP will probably bring this up too. My question is, with the tools available to you, AIs, how can you use AI to change the client experience to provide a better client experience? Because the minute your client finds out you've got a better tool, you've got an easy button, right? Everybody, everybody that's using BIM, Revit, or you know whatever your your chosen uh, BIM software is, did your client start valuing you more? Did your client start valuing your services more when you had BIM and you introduced BIM to your projects? Or did your clients learn about BIM and eventually say, oh, well, this should be faster. <laughs> this should be more accurate. This should be, right? So the minute the client finds out that you have these tools that quote unquote, make it easier to do what you do, commoditization, mm -hmm. they start devaluing, you know, in their minds, it starts devaluing your services that you're providing to them. So can you flip that around? That'll be the savior. That'll be, that'll be the place where you can implement these technologies and say, okay, instead of focusing on, or in addition to focusing on using these technologies to make what we do better, faster, et cetera, how do we flip that around and use these technologies in a way that actually impacts the experience sure. of my client? That's where value will be seen. Let's talk about commoditization, as a matter of fact, with architects or designers and engineers even. Um, you know, I talk about this on the podcast a lot. And, you know, obviously we've got inflation and we've got sort of, I, I think of commoditization when it comes to um, the fee structure, right? Very simply, like how much do we charge versus, um, you know, what, what can the market bear um, rather than looking at what's the value that we are providing, right? We've become a, especially on the interiors, if I look back, you know, 15 years ago, I'm basically getting the exact same fee uh, for a corporate interiors job, let's call it 425, 450 for a pretty generic interiors job in New York, maybe a little less in New Jersey. Um, and that's still what I'm getting, right? If I go above that, I'm probably out. Now, there's always special cases. There's high-end work of that where you can now start to really th think about what the amount of time you need to provide and what that fee will yield. But in the meantime, you know, everybody's salary has obviously gone up. Um, you know, there's uh, the, the starting salary. You know, I think I made uh, 16 grand was my starting salary. We're nowhere near that um, for a starting starting architecture right out of school. Um, you know, I, but I think you have an interesting take on uh, commoditization and providing value. Um, can you explain a little bit of that? Yeah, it's um, also a great question. And... You know, all of those market forces that you identified are real, right? We can't, it'd be easy for me to say, oh, well, just, just look at value pricing, right? right? But that, yeah. you know, I'm not going to win sure, in a vacuum, <laughs> right? You're not going to win. And in a vacuum that doesn't work, um, or, or only in a vacuum does that work, I guess, where you don't have those forces that, that you're identifying, but we do if if we're going to if we're going to fight commoditization 
we have to understand, you know, there's that, that old analogy of the, um, there's a couple, a couple of great stories, but there's the analogy of the, the hole. Do you want the drill bit or do you want the hole? Right. And so I live in a house that's uh, almost 90 years old in a, in an historic neighborhood outside of downtown Indianapolis. And so there's stuff to do around here. Right? It looks uh, good. Things need to be fixed. <laughs> and you know, thanks. Um, you know, there, there, there are always projects. And so, you know, I might be working on something and say, oh, I need, I've got to drill a hole here and run a wire through it or, you know, whatever needs to be done. And, you know, having, um, having a son who might also tinker with things, I might go down to the workbench and say, Hey, I need a quarter inch hole for this and find my quarter inch drill bit missing. Just saying it could happen. <laughs> so what, what, you know, what's my response to that? Right. Um, I'm going to do everything I can to avoid going to the hardware store to buy a new quarter inch bit. Right. I've got a neighbor on each side that does to do woodworking. I'm going to see if they have one. I'm going to, if, if they don't, I'm going to try to come up with some other creative idea to, to get this, this hole. Right. And the point is I want the hole. I value the hole, not the bit. And so when we're thinking about how we're serving our clients, the I, I've got this this formula. Um, it's not a real formula, but I say it's P plus S equals R. And the P is problem. Every one of your clients has a problem. They may not call it that. They may call it a project, but <laughs> but every client has a problem that they need to have solved. That's the S, and you're responsible for coming up with the solution. But where we often miss the boat is that we stop at that solution. It's okay, our, my job is to is to come up with a solution to this problem. And it's not. It's not really your job. Your job is to provide the R, which is the result. So P plus S, problem plus solution equals R, result. That's what our clients actually value. We get caught in this trap. Oh, I'm going to design this thing. Whatever this thing is, it's a jewel box, it's a home, it's a restaurant, it's a museum, it's, you know, what it's a theater, whatever it is. If you are Calatrava, <laughs> you're, you're being hired for some wonderfully organic, bony, amazing structure that probably does some amazing things. Right. right? Museum of, of art in Milwaukee or, or something like that. And you may be getting hired specifically because you are Calatrava and the, the client wants, wants that, right? Wants Calatrava, wants the white, wants the, the skeletal structures, et cetera. Most of us don't get hired for that. They're hiring us. Again, back to making our lives better, right? They're hiring us to make their life better. If they're a restaurateur, it may be more efficient. It may be uh, better visibility. It may be uh, better experience, whatever. If it's a couple that has realized that they have just, you know, six more years of summers left with their grandkids, the, it may be the beach house on the, on the Jersey Shore where the whole family can gather for the summer, right? The result of that thing that you've designed. And so um, we have to get in the mindset 
of selling the result mm. and, and obviously providing the result. Uh, but that's where, uh, and that becomes problematic. I'll, I do a talk called Commodity Is As Commodity Does. The newest version of it is going to be chuck full of AI examples, right? But every time I do that talk, especially for an engineering crowd that does transportation work, yeah, but the Department of Transportation, they have this checklist of things we have to present. And yes, yes, they do, mm -hmm. right? And that's a reality that we have to deal with. When we compete in the RFP and the RFQ world, we get into our heads the idea that, okay, the Department of Transportation gave us this checklist or whoever the client is, they gave us this checklist in the RFP. And when we start answering those questions, we start checking those boxes, that's our way in, right? That's our way to getting hired for this project. So we're thinking about it in that direction. I'm going to check these boxes. I'm going to answer all their questions. I'm going to make myself the same as everybody else by checking all of these boxes. And that's, what's going to get me in. Ironically, that's that selection committee is working in exactly the opposite direction. They're using that list to eliminate people. Yeah. They're using that list to, okay, well, you didn't check that box. I'm going to kick you out. That, that type of thing, certainly, but they're working in the opposite direction. And what, you know, what I'll tell your marketing and business development teams as they go in for the, uh, for the shortlist interview, you know, you've, you've made it to the shortlist, go in for the shortlist interview. You need to know the three most pressing questions on the minds of the people that are sitting across the table from you. And by the way, those questions are not in the RFP or the RFQ. <laughs> They're not there, right? That Those are not the questions. That's not how you differentiate yourself. You have to break out of that sameness, right? If we're just meeting the expectation, then, you know, it's what's the, uh, what's the adage? The, uh, um, the project that uh, is designed to build the code minimum is the, the worst le worst project that can legally be built or right. I, I butchered that somehow, but but it's sort of the same same thing, right? If if we just met those requirements, that was the minimum, and that's eventually going to get us kicked out. So if I know what's really on their mind, right, and it's hard, it's really hard because these days that selection committee is the facilities manager, it's legal, it's marketing, it's it's everybody. Right? Everybody has yep. a say. Yeah, there's ten people. Yep. And you go, what, what, why are there ten people in this room? The only person that really matters is the whoever's writing the checks and the person running facilities. Mm -hmm. yeah, that's what we think, but they all they all have a say. So getting to an understanding of what really matters to them beyond the RFP or RFQ is the only way to break out of that sameness. It's the only way to differentiate ourselves. It's the only way to combat that commoditization because if we can answer to those things right because those are the life-changing things those are the things that make their lives better if we can answer to them and so that you know that's sort of an ethereal view of it but ultimately it does come back yeah to client experience and it does come back 
to making their lives better. And I think you're right. I mean, we have, even we do it, and I know a lot of times going into it, you know, we make a presentation, and, and since you're a director of marketing, you'll you'll appreciate this. We make a presentation all about ourselves. This is what we do. This is where our offices are. This is how many people we are. This is the, here's 15 projects that are exactly like your project. Oh, look, we're definitely qualified. We can do it with our eyes closed. And we'll throw in a couple other things that we're really proud of just to show you that, oh, yeah, by the way, we do this other stuff too in case, just in case something you know, kind of catches your eye and maybe that'll be the one deciding factor. And what we always talk about, though, before, you know, let's call that the rough draft. If time and time sometimes is not sometimes we're told we're doing a presentation, mm-hmm. you know, in, in a day later, right? And we don't have that time. But if time is is available, we will say, okay, hold on. Let's take a look at this client. What are their core values? What's important to them? Can we pitch this with sort of ideas already in place? Like, hey, we think this is going to be important to you. It's a risk to do that, but at least we have a point of view um, when we do that. I guess, you know, putting your sort of director of marketing hat on, you know, what are your strategies when it comes down to kind of getting ready for that pitch? Getting ready for, again, you need to know, right? You need to know. And I, and I'm asked that question every time I give that presentation. Yeah. Well, how do I know what those three questions are? That's your job to know, right? You've got to do the research. You've got to know who the people are. Um, you know, you've got it, like you said, core values of the organization, et cetera, all of, all of those types of things. And then you have to understand that you can't be the hero. If you want someone to read your story or watch your story, or listen to your story, or whatever, you can't be the hero of your own story. Mm. Right? The, the, the most popular, the most memorable, the most important characters are the guides, the mentors, you know, the, those, those characters in the movies or, you know, whatever your favorite genre is or, or medium is. So we have to make it about them, right? We have to have an incredible understanding of where they're coming from, what they want, you know, what success means for them. Um, I also, you know, I used to coach teams uh, for the interview process and my goal basically is to break the process as quickly as possible. Hmm. Um, you know, like you said, you come in, you talk about yourself. That was, that was something that I always talk about, right? So picture yourself. You've made it to the short list. You're presenting at uh, two o'clock and there's two other teams presenting in front of you and, and one behind you or something like that. And so your team is sitting out in the corridor waiting to be called into the room, right? And so at some point, somebody pokes their head out the door and says, hey, you know, Mancini Duffy, we're, you're up. Christian, it's time to go. Let's, let's hear from you. And so you walk in the room, you set everything up, and then you introduce yourself, right? You introduce yourself and your day. Hey, we're, I'm Christian. We're Mancini Duffy. They knew that. <laughs> Right. So why did we just waste five minutes or whatever on that? If I can walk in and while we're setting up, I can break the process say, listen, I, you know, I know there's two that presented before me and I know there's others, but you know, before we get started, what are the big questions? And you're not always going to get answers to these, but, yeah. but what are things 
questions that you have that just have not been answered that need to be answered? Can you start mining them right now, just casually before it gets started as you're setting up? And whatever you can gain from that, you got to get, you got to be very good at asking questions and hearing and listening and responding. And it may mean that you throw your presentation out the door, right? You may go, oh, okay, we went the wrong direction. Let's just turn this into a conversation and make it about whatever, you know, you're going to get more, you're going to get better reconnaissance in that first couple of minutes before you get started, probably than you've had to date because they're, they're reacting, they're responding yeah. to what they've heard from the other teams, assuming you're not first, of course, but, right. um, but it, it's that, you know, it's, it's the, it's empathy. And, right? and for that it's, reason it's alone is why I always choose to go last in, in mm-hmm. presentations. <laughs> yep. Yeah. I want to, I want to know, um, you know, the, the holy grail is to understand what their mindset is after hearing the other two or three or four, however many people went before you. Yeah. Because if I can, if I can get to that understanding, I can respond to that. Right. And I can, I can create a conversation around that. And that's more I guarantee that's more valuable than any slide that you have um, in your deck. Yeah. I, that, that's great, great advice. Um, let's just switch gears a bit and talk a little bit about you, a um, little bit of your origin story. Where did you grow up? You know, were your parents in the profession? Do you always want to be an architect? <laughs> um, so I'm originally from Atlanta. Dad was transferred to Chicago when I was a kid, so I don't sound like I'm from Atlanta. <laughs> um no, parents were not in the profession. Dad was an accountant. I did not pick up any of uh, any of those accountant genes at all. <laughs> so um, when we when we moved, so um, he he was transferred. We moved during the blizzard of '78. So start to figure out how old I am. Um, as a kid, that was amazing. Because I'd never in my life seen snow before. We moved. It took three days to drive from Atlanta to Chicago because the interstate kept getting shut down, you know, and we, you're in the car. Maybe you found a hotel room, whatever. And as a kid, it's like, oh, my gosh, look at, look at all this. We finally got up to, to uh, where the, the house that my parents bought. The realtor drove us around the block so I could see the school that I was going to go to and the crossing guard was standing on one of those mountains, right? That the snow plows create when they're plowing the drives <laughs> and everything. The, this crossing guard was above the top of the car. And I thought, wow, this is amazing. <laughs> As a parent, apparently it wasn't so great. <laughs> <laughs> um, so mom and dad moved back to Atlanta as soon as he, he retired, but I, <laughs> I stayed in Chicago um, for a while, for a while, uh, even after architecture school. And, uh, uh, so, but, but moving, moving up there, you know, mom in a brand new place, three youngish kids, I'm the, I'm the oldest, you know, learning a new place, finding a new place, trying to keep kids entertained. Mom is a uh, lifelong continual learner. And so is exploration, right? The museums and, uh, I've seen every Frank Lloyd Wright, 
project there that is in the Oak Park, River Forest, nice. you know, all the all the areas up there outside of Chicago. Um, so there's that in the museums, but mom and dad were also from farms in Georgia. Hmm. And so I really grew up, you know, as, especially as a younger kid going to grandparents' houses and the barns and the, you know, all the agrarian architecture. And that always fascinated me. So I think it's probably a combination of, you know, probably climbing through dairy barns and, and, uh, hay lofts, you know, on that very, very functional side of design, if you will, uh, all, all of the, the old homes, you know, out there in the country and, and then everything that, uh, that a great city like Chicago had to offer that kind of, uh, gave me the bug, um, and I, you know, for, I don't know when I decided I was going to architecture school, but it was pretty early on. Okay. Nice. And then, so tell us a little bit about your career path prior to Shadow Ventures. Then we'll get into Shadow Ventures and what it's about. Sure. Um, where yeah. were you before, beforehand and kind of, how did you get to this, to this point? Yeah. So, so I went to Ball State. That's where I went to architecture school. That's where I teach now. Um, so I've got a couple of degrees from Ball State and then, I went back home. I went to Chicago, worked for what was at that time was a pretty big firm. It's uh, it's called Epstein now. Um, now, you know, as you were mentioning before, it's probably about the size of Mancini Duffy, right? It's not a not a big firm anymore in relative scale. Um, and so I was there for a couple of years and, and uh, eventually came down to Indianapolis where I live now, worked at uh, the H&TBs of the world and, and uh, uh, some smaller um, and mid-sized firms. And then at some point I was approached by a couple of guys to um, uh, take a, they, they had recently started a couple of years earlier, they had started a, a small architecture firm and they had at the same time, they had filed the paperwork for a sister company, which was meant to be design and develop or, or build and develop. And so they hired me to come on and, and turn that, um, that LLC on paper essentially into a business. And, um, and so that's what I did. And that was my first startup experience, really not startups as we think about them in the, in the venture world, but that was my first startup experience. And that, that kind of follows on the heels of, um, you know, when I was at Epstein in the early nineties, I guess that was. Uh, the economy was bad. It wasn't 2008 bad, but the economy was bad. Construction had stopped. It was hard to find a job right out of college. And so I did everything that I could, you know, just to make myself valuable, to to learn new skills and um, basically not get laid off, honestly, is mm -hmm. what it was. Right? Because Fridays were the days that people were handed boxes. And so I learned to not like going to work on Friday, for one. But... The result of that and the result of a, a pretty varied background when I was in school was someone would come up to me and I always say it no fault of my own. I, I sort of got into the business of architecture because someone would come up to me and tap me on the shoulder and they say, hey, you're pretty good with those graphics. Go help the marketing team with this, this uh, thing they've got to get out the door. Or you're pretty good with writing. Go help the business development team with this deadline that they're working on. And that was my introduction into the business of architecture. Hmm. I didn't know there was any such thing as a business of architecture, right? 
Um, it's probably why I teach pro practice now is because we didn't learn any of that um, or very little of that, very little exposure to the business of architecture when we were in school. But now all of a sudden I'm involved in marketing and I'm involved in business development. And while, you know, I continue to work on projects and eventually manage projects, et cetera, there was always this, this pull and, and, and these uh, responsibilities over on the business side, generally marketing business development. And uh, so that, that continued along and these, you know, these guys that approached me and, you know, start this business. And so we started it up. Um, now all of a sudden we've got design, build, develop all in house, you know, and I'm running the, the, uh, marketing and running the, uh, uh build and develop side. And then 2008 comes along hmm. and decimates everybody. Um, and then went through startup opportunity number two at the beginning of 2010. Um, and, uh, that, that was, pretty successful right out of the gate, despite the, the economy and everything. We won firm of the year by in, in Indiana, where we are, um, by 2012. And then by 2014, I say my story is just like Steve Jobs without the fame or the fortune. Um, that second startup iteration, uh, by 2014, I was reorganized out of the firm that I, I helped start. Oh, wow. Uh, so basically, um, I was running the, uh, again, running the build and develop side and, uh, our owner made a calculated decision to go all in on a, on a project. And, uh, you know, RF, RFP shortlist time <laughs> comes up, right? He's okay. Well, how are we going to perform? We we're small enough that he knew that we couldn't perform on this project. So he said, okay, I'm going to take all the resources from you, you know, from your side, I'm going to shift them over here. I'm just going to hire. Which is what he did. Okay. And, um, and so then I was out, right? Um, and, and, you know, asking, what am I going to do when I grow up? And at that point, um, it's a little bit, I mean, this, this could sound obnoxiously arrogant, I understand. But at this point, you know, it's like, where would I go that wouldn't feel like a downgrade? We'd won firm of the year. Uh, we had a whole, you know, in, in, that's 14. So that was, we're four years into it at that point. I mean, we had a, a whole armful of awards, mm. including firm of the year, et cetera. And this, this project that we were interviewing for, which was ultimately my demise there was, uh, would have been a, uh, a game changing project. And we were teamed up with a very, very well-known architect. Um, that we had developed a relationship with. It's like, you know, where would I go that it wouldn't feel like sort of a step down? Um, and am I really, do I really have the stomach for another rebuilding at this point? So at that point, I, I decided just to go out on my own as a consultant, focusing on marketing business development and help as many firms as I could. Nice. Um, so, you know, that, that story, you know, you fast forward a lot of years that, that brings in the conversation of entree architect and, and podcasts and, um, you know, do, doing, uh, different courses and trainings and, and, um, basically everything to help architects be better at the business of architecture. Yeah. So let's jump into that. So the, the, you're very successful on the podcast side. Um, how, what are the podcasts that you that are yours that you're involved with? I know you help host a few. I mean, you've done probably a thousand episodes of, of various podcasts. I would assume probably all combined, right? I mean, 
Entree Architects might way be close. up there. <laughs> might be close. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Th- those those that are mine, or, or you know, that I've I've I play a production part in uh, Build Your Brand podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, there's still only one season published at this point because Jeff is eternally behind <laughs> on, <laughs> on uh, the scripting of, of season two. Uh, so Build Your Brand in at the beginning of uh, at the beginning of the pandemic. Mark Arla Page, who's the founder of Entree Architect, and I got together and came up with this idea that became um, what was eventually known as Context and Clarity, which was a daily live stream show. Yeah. And I hosted that for three years, um, every weekday for three years. And um, and that, that was that was literally a conversation. It was a conversation between me and architects around the world. Um, That's quite so that a was commitment. Context and Clarity. It, it, yeah. <laughs> Looking back at the time, you know, you're immersed. It's like the forest for the trees. Yeah. Thing. You don't really realize it, but looking back, it's like, yeah, that was, that was a little bit over the top maybe. Um, but it was fantastic. I mean, it built such a strong community and it, it provided, um, a great release and, and resources for, um, the architects that were participating. Um, out of that came Context and Clarity Live, which you've been a guest on. Bolanli's been a guest on. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Will Gadara, who I mentioned earlier, uh, Seth Godin, others. Um, that That's a weekly interview show. Um, we're on summer break right now, but I think as we record this, probably four weeks from today, it comes back okay. for the fall season. Um, so um, that's Context and Clarity Live. And then right now, for Shadow Partners, I am hosting what I call Shadow Shorts, which is a daily uh, short form, very short form, 10 to 15, yeah, 10 to 15 minute uh, conversation, I say with experts and thought leaders around the, uh, the realm of innovation for the built environment. So engineers, architects, uh, construction folks, uh, startups, literally anybody that is looking at the future of how we design, build, develop, um, what shapes our world. Mm-hmm. And so that's, that, um, that project is really fun because it's, first of all, it's a lot of people, again, it's a daily, um, but we get to touch on one big idea every day. And, um, you know, it may be people and technology. It may be, uh, AI, it, it may be who knows, Okay, but, um, but it's so, it's so varied. Um, and I do like the short form podcast or, or the short format because it's so consumable. Yeah. No, and I'm and I'm going to be on a guest a guest on that you too. Are. So uh, I'm this looking week, forward to it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I better brush up. Um, so listen, we're, we've uh, almost got an hour here. I'd love to have you back at some point because I feel like there's so much more we could talk about. You you have such a wide uh, breadth of knowledge in the industry and sort of around other parts of the industry that we don't normally talk about here on the on this podcast. So. We'll have to schedule that for sure. Um, but sort of last question, is there anything we haven't covered that you'd like to tell the listeners? Oh, I think, well, here's a shameless plug because it, um, this I'm excited about. It's really sort of the culmination of a lot of things that I've worked on over the years. Um, actually, this week we sent out or, or made the application page live for the uh, 2023 uh, Shadow Partners Incubator, mm. 
And it's actually, I run my graduate class as a startup incubator. And so we're doing this with shadow partners and we're looking for pre-seed stage startups that are focused on AEC and commercial real estate. And so um, we we are limiting it to products and technology, not services. So if, if you say, hey, I've got this, you know, this great way to uh, rethink an architecture uh, studio or an architecture firm. That's not what we're talking about right. here. Um, that, that's, that's for another venue, but, um, but that's, to me, that's exciting because it's, it's just the ability to bring in teams and, and educate them, get them exposure, uh, get them teamed up with mentors. And then they'll, they'll all get to uh, pitch at, uh, shadow summit, which is our event in Atlanta in October, but it's, that's one of the things that I love about the shadow environment, both the partners and the, the venture side, the VC side and, and the partner side that I'm on. Um, I, I just get to spend my days looking for people that are trying to make this profession and this industry better uh, and more respected and more profitable and all of those things that go into it, but ultimately uh, a better way to shape the environment around us. And, you know, that that means a lot to me. Um, um, and, and it's an, it's an awful lot of fun to, to, uh, be around it and, and just to play a, a tiny part in it. That is great. That is great. Well, I look forward to that for sure. So Jeff, thank you so much for being guest here on the Anti-Architect podcast. Uh, there's a lot in this conversation I'm going to go back and listen to because take some notes myself, especially on the presentation. Uh, I think that was very valuable, um, to our, to our audience. So uh, to learn and hear more about Jeff, um, obviously, you can go to the Shadow Ventures uh, or it's shadow.vc uh, webpage. Also, check out Jeff's um, uh, LinkedIn, his Twitter, very active, obviously, and all the podcasts and everything coming up. So anything I missed in the plugs there? No, I don't think so. Th there is a distinction between Shadow Ventures, which is shadow.vc and Shadow Partners, which is shadowpartners.co. Um, <laughs> I'm on the partner side. It's, it's confusing. Got VC it. okay. is, is a literal uh, venture capital firm, right? Um, which is regulated by the, the uh, SEC, et cetera. And so all the promotion, the advising, the consulting has to be on the partner side, uh, which is which is my side. There's there's no no marketing of, of VC stuff over there on the VC <laughs> side. So I'm on the partner side, but, uh, but it's, it's a, uh, if you're not familiar with the, with that ecosystem is sort of a strange distinction there. Awesome. Well, thank you again. I really appreciate you taking the time. Absolutely. Thanks, All Christian. Right. I appreciate you having me. <laughs>